You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast featuring some of Indiana's most fascinating men and women whose impact has shaped our state, our communities, and us. Join us as we discuss their imprint on our history. Leaders and Legends is brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated, your local veteran business enterprise specializing in public relations, media relations, public outreach, crisis communications, and digital photography. My name is Robert Bain, Principal of Veteran Strategies, former Deputy Chief of Staff to Mayor Greg Ballard, and Communications Director for the Indiana Republican Party. I'm honored to be your host for our discussion. Thank you for joining Leaders and Legends, the podcast presented by Veteran Strategies and sponsored by the Girl Scouts of Central Indiana. Our guest today is Tim Swearens, a journalist extraordinaire and now public relations PR consultant. And I'm certainly going to give him a chance to tout his business and what he can bring. I probably, I guess I can say this now since you're no longer a part of the media, uh, probably one of the best friends I've had in the media, Matt Tully and Jim Shella and others, but Tim and I have had lunch and more times than I can count. And there's no more honest conservative, no more honest journalist I've ever met, ever worked with than Tim. Tim, thank you very much for joining us. Glad to be here. Uh, Born and raised in Indiana? Illinois, but almost Indiana. Uh, grew up on the west side of the Wabash near Vincennes. Uh, so we were Indiana-oriented when I was growing up. And you matriculated to which wonderful college? So started out two years at Vincennes University uh, near my hometown in Illinois. So lived at home and commuted uh, to Vincennes for two years and then went on to IU Bloomington to finish up. When did you graduate from IU? 83, so a long, long time ago. So you were there with Kip too? Was he? Uh, you know, I didn't. Uh, I didn't uh, move in Kip circles in those days. <laughs> I, I was more hanging out with Bob Kravitz at the IDS. And you guys were friends back then. B- Bob Kravitz, yeah, knew knew Bob back in uh, back in the days when we were much younger. And you you knew uh, someone else who's pretty famous. Went to school, worked for the IDS at the time, I believe, if my memory serves. Now judges us all. Well, that's right, Mark Massa. So I knew Mark at, uh, at IU. We were both uh, journalism majors working on the Daily Student, and then we both worked in, at the Evansville Press. Uh, Mark was a sports writer at the Evansville Press. I was on the copy desk after college, so mid-'80s, we were both running around Evansville. Well, Mark Massa is currently a justice on the Indiana Supreme Court and yes. one of the smartest guys you'll ever meet. Engaging, too, sports nut, good guy. Um, I'm a big fan of Kravitz. I think he's landed on his feet. He has. He has. has. You know, it's a it's a really tough time in in the media, as as uh, I know well these days. And so Bob was uh, lost his job at WTHR last fall. Uh, is now working for the Athletic, and um, he was he was a believe it or not, he was a sports columnist back in the Daily Student days at IU, and he's he's maintained that for 35 years. Well, and you were at IU for some pretty heady times. Were you? Uh, you went there first two years at Vincennes. So your junior year, were you there when IU won, or did you come right after? Right after. So uh, I started in the fall semester of '81. So they were coming off the high of the national championship. Uh, my first semester there. What? What's? You know, Sherry Syward, who's been on the podcast. We've had other IU grads, of course, including Tom Coverdale. And I asked him kind of the same thing. Everybody I know who's gone to IU would go back tomorrow. Just describe it as an incredibly fun, engaging, wonderful experience. It was it was a great experience. Uh, started dating my wife there, uh, so we oh. were both we were both uh, journalism students at IU, and we started dating. And so uh, I would go back for multiple reasons. <laughs> it's like the movie. Uh, Back to school with Rodney Dangerfield. He had pitched the story, the movie, to Harold Ramis, who's the famous comedic mm-hmm. director, Animal House, Caddyshack, so on and so forth. To be a Dangerfield's idea was to go back to school as an older man and try to make it. And Ramis says, "Yeah, but you should go back at your current salary. Go back as a rich older man. That's what I'd want to do." And that was the part of the of the movie that I think kind of made it. Did you find living in Bloomington back then 
poverty stricken? Was it one of those things where you had to work? How'd you get through college? Yeah. So, so it was a different age, different world back then. Um, I, I go to Bloomington these days and I'm kind of amazed at, at the condos that are being built. And, you know, I saw online just yesterday, they were selling 400,000, $500,000 condos on Kirkwood Avenue. Um, and, uh, back in the day when, when I was there, you know, Kirkwood was a student hangout and uh, cheap beer and cheap pizza. And that's that's what you know, that's why you went there. Um, the world has changed a lot uh, <laughs> since since then. And, uh, you know, you, you worked your way through college. Um, you did a lot of jobs in the summer. Um, did a lot of things that uh, were great preparation because you, you learned I don't want to do this for the rest of my life. And. Um, so I bagged groceries and I made built sidewalks and, you know, worked for the street crew, uh, for the little town where I grew up. And, you know, you, you, you do that type of work and you say, there's a reason why I want to go back to school in the fall and make sure I'm getting a degree because I, I'm building for a future that I, that I want. And, um, I think those jobs were really important in learning a work ethic and, and learning that, um, there are lots of different types of people in the world, and one set of group, one group of people is not necessarily better than the other. Um, so I, I think we've lost a little bit of that these days, where um, middle class kids and upper middle class kids don't interact as much on the work level and the life level, maybe with people who are blue collar and working for a living, and you know, bagging groceries and doing all those things for for a career for a job. They're interacting on Facebook, which means they're actually not interacting. interacting right. Journalism bug catch you early. Did you write for your high school paper? I did. So I decided uh, sophomore, junior year of high school, somewhere in there, that I wanted to become a journalist. And, and that really never changed. And so uh, there were opportunities, uh, you know, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, five years ago, maybe to, to go into another line of work. And I decided, you know, I really love journalism. Um, you know, the, the, the journalism industry uh, hit hard times really in 2008, 2009. Um, it was beginning of a pretty steep decline in the industry, uh, and that, that uh, decline is continuing. And so, you know, I, I hired a career consultant probably six or seven years ago, paid a lot of money, uh, got some good advice. But the one thing I remember him saying was, do what you love. And it's like, well, gosh, I really love journalism. Um, and so I ended up making the decision to, to stay in it for as long as I could. What was your first? Take us through your career after IU. So uh, started out, first job was in Owensboro, Kentucky. I was thinking about this just the other day. My first job was Owensboro, Kentucky. I made $200 a week. That worked out to about $5 an hour. Um, and so that was after getting a, a degree from IU and, and starting a career. And then my, uh, my wife or fiance at the time was working in Evansville, uh, at the newspaper. And, uh, back then, uh, believe it or not, there were three newspaper staffs in Evansville, Indiana. Uh, really? There, yes. So there was a morning paper, the Evansville Courier. There was the afternoon paper, the Evansville Press, and they had a combined dedicated Sunday staff that worked on the Sunday Courier and Press. And my wife worked on that on that Sunday staff, and they had it was a separate newsroom. They did their own thing. Um, so she got a job there um, shortly after she graduated from IU, and so I moved uh, downriver, upriver, uh, from Owensboro <laughs> to Evansville, um, and we got married in '84. Uh, and then in 85, the opportunity came along to move to South Florida, uh, relocate. And so we picked up and, and moved, uh, in the summer of 85 to, uh, to, uh, a really strange environment, really strange world of, of South Florida in the eighties. Uh, the cocaine wars were going on then. Uh, it was it was eye opening for a couple of uh, young people from the Midwest to move. You worked for which paper? So uh, we originally started out working for a Scripps hired paper in Hollywood. It was called the Hollywood Sun Tattler, and then my wife got a job at the Fort Lauderdale paper, the Sun Sentinel, and I got a job at the Miami Herald. Um, so we were in South Florida for twelve years before we came back to Indiana, and in, uh, in ninety seven, which is when I went started with the Star. What was the first, and then we're going to go back to Florida because of, of something that you uh, witnessed and actually wrote about, Yes, uh, which is fascinating. What was the first big story you can remember covering? 
the first big story uh, would have been the Challenger explosion, the, the space shuttle uh, explosion. Uh, and, and I can remember working with... January of 86, 86 I believe. 86, yes. So uh, w- was, we were living in Broward County. Um, and Broward County is in between... Well, Fort Lauderdale is, is Broward County. So just north of Miami. Um, but, uh, it was, it was a big day, big time for, um, America's space exploration. Um, I can remember standing on the roof of the newspaper building and seeing night launches of the shuttle. I mean, 200, 200 miles away, but the, Mm -hmm. you know, the, 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 the fire coming out, uh, would show up from a long way. So there were a couple of times, you know, everybody would go up on the roof and watch the, watch the shuttle take off. Um, and, uh, that explosion was an enormous story, big story. And it, it had, had not happened before. Correct. And there's the Apollo one fire yes. in the mid to late sixties, but, but the challenger explosion, the challenger was explosion the first. was a whole different scale. Of course, all the, the whole entire crew was lost. Um, and I, I, I can remember, uh, what at the time seemed like an old city editor. He was probably in his forties, but, uh, it seemed like an old city <laughs> editor. And he said there had only been two original stories in his, in his newspaper career. One was the Kennedy assassination and the other one was the challenger explosion. And, and, uh, so that was, that was an enormous story with, with huge implications and, and a very complex story of. And did you actually cover the explosion? I mean, were you part of the coverage team? Uh, so I was, I was uh, an editor in the newsroom at that time. I was a news editor, so uh, helping plan the coverage. Uh, and that, this was this was pre digital days, so the print newspaper was everything at that time. And so, you know, page after page of coverage, and that took a lot of planning and, and, it and was figuring particularly out how to, what stories to write. Forgive me, it was particularly covered because of McAuliffe, the the first civilian for lack of a better term in space who so, was a teacher so yes yeah, school teacher uh and there's so there's a lot of attention on that particular flight uh because she was the first civilian in space and then and then uh the tragedy happened and uh obviously international attention on on the explosion let's talk about something else you witnessed while you were down there instead of coming back to it let's try to keep this contemporaneous uh, and you wrote about this just a few months ago, I believe. You were selected as one of the reporters, and correct me if I'm wrong, to witness the execution of serial killer Ted Bundy. Yes. So that was in uh, January of 89. Um, and I guess it would have been February of 89. Uh, but uh, 30 years ago, um, I was uh, working at the Hollywood paper, and uh, there was AP had sent out uh, a news advisory saying that uh, Bundy's execution had been scheduled, that he had agreed to do a press conference the day before the execution, and they were looking for reporters who would go and interview him, a, a press pool to to ask him questions. And uh, so I talked to my editor and said, hey, I'd like to do this. He said, go for it. So I sent my name in, um, got a notice maybe an hour or two later saying, you know, congratulations. Uh, <laughs> Ed McMahon showed up at your house. Yeah. So, uh, you know, you, you've been selected. Um, we'll get back to you with details. Uh, but, you know, it was planning on being at the prison in Stark, Florida. Uh, and um, so began the preparation planning for that. And then it, it wasn't it, it was the same day. It wasn't much later. Got a second notice. And this had not been publicized uh, that they selected a smaller group of reporters from the pool uh, to actually witness the execution. That's not what I had actually signed up for. Um, and uh, I, I knew, understood the gravity of that assignment. And so... Um, talked to, again, talked to my editor. Actually, I think I talked to my wife, um, and said, you know, decided, I decided I would do it and got back to him and said, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll do it. I'll be there. Um, what was the method of execution? So it was electric chair. Um, and the, the electric chair had a, had a nickname, old Sparky. Sparky. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and it had, it had earned that nickname because, uh, on more than one occasion, uh, the execution had gone badly. Um, and so, uh, oh darn! It, yeah, so it could it could be grisly at times. And so went up to uh, Tallahassee, um, 
up to North Florida, uh, from from South Florida uh, the day before the execution. Uh, again, thinking at the time that it was going to go up and interview Bundy, and then the next day witness the execution. Uh, somewhere en route, uh, the, the decision was made to cancel the press conference. Um, and Bundy actually spent most of that day with um, a radio evangelist, a radio talk show host named James Dobson. Uh, oh, who, yeah, who James leads Dobson. focus yeah. on the family. Mm-hmm. Um, and so um, got up there um, and uh, waited for the execution. Any Any qualms? It turned out it didn't happen, right? But there's a there's a school of thought that you shouldn't give these men the publicity they clearly seek. And, and yes, sir, certainly that's that is uh, a concern. I think in Bundy's case, um, he had already been given so much publicity. Uh, his first murder trial, uh, which was in Miami, was the first nationally televised murder trial in in in, in the United States. Um, his second trial was televised as well. Um, before he was executed, uh, there had been a, a high-rated TV movie about uh, about his uh, crimes, um, and I can't think of the actor's name. He's on a CSI franchise now, uh, who played him. Um, and so there had been a, a tremendous amount of tension already on the case, um, but there hadn't really been hard questions asked. Um, there were a lot of questions about uh, the range of crimes and what motivated him and all of that. And so there was, there was a story to tell there. Um, and, but, but Bundy was an, an enormous narcissist. Uh, he was very manipulative. Um, and I think he saw an opportunity with Dobson to have a softball interview, to be honest, and to uh, paint himself in some ways as a victim. Are you generally in favor of the death penalty? Very mixed feelings uh, about that. Because um, it's been a, as most people listening know, Tim was the conservative writer and editorial page editor for the Star for the last 20, 25 years, and we'll get to that. But I know a lot of conservatives, like me, I'm against the death penalty. Yeah. Um, only because just because the finality is so attractive, but it's the one thing you can't rectify. Absolutely. You can't, you can't go back on that. And, and so with somebody like a Ted Bundy, there was absolutely no question of his guilt. And he right. had committed not just one horrific crime, but a number of horrific crimes. Uh, he had murdered many people over the course of many years. Um, he was completely unrepentant. Uh, he was, um, in some ways, uh, continuing to be a danger because of his manipulation. Um, he, even though he, when he was in prison and on death row, he was continuing to manipulate uh, people to do things for him, uh, to plead his case, and to. Um, it, 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 he, he continued to be a menace to our society, even on death row. Um, so you, you slept so, like a baby that night. I, well, no, I wouldn't say that. Uh, uh, I mean, the, so, so taking a person's life, even somebody like a Ted Bundy, uh, should never be done lightly. Um, it is, it is final, as you said. Um, even when there is no question of the person's guilt, we are still ending a life. And I, I believe that life is sacred. Um, that is a very, very grave decision to make. And one of the things that I'll never forget, oh, two things I'll never forget about that day. One is being inside the prison um, before, during, and after the execution. Everybody I met that day inside the prison understood the gravity of what was going on. Um Pres- and it's the 80s, right? So there's a resurgence of the death penalty. There, there is. Was a re- there was so, yeah. So 1989. Unconstitutional, Furman versus Georgia, I think, in the early 70s, which is why Manson and a lot of those people had their death sentences commuted. The death penalty sort of thought of law works its way back through the courts. It becomes under under Republican governance throughout the country, much more popular. There were executions yes. here or people receiving the death penalty. Do yourself a favor. Don't read about Steve and Judy and what he did. Mm-hmm. 
anyway, so so it was kind of a, not its heyday that, but but it was coming back, yes. and it was coming back with a vengeance, no pun intended. And the American people wanted it to come back. Absolutely, I mean, and like I said, uh, you know, inside the prison that day, there was there was an understanding of the gravity of what was taking place. There was uh, a very high level professionalism uh, from everybody I encountered. Um, uh, including the journalist uh, of understanding of what was going on and, and what it meant. Um, and so th- there was, uh, as hard as that was to witness the actual execution, um, there was um, an understanding of, of why it was necessary and how, how uh, serious it was. Um, the other side, though, uh, was uh, almost immediately of, upon leaving the prison and stepping outside uh, stepping outside the witness uh, room and walking down an out- outdoor staircase to get into a van, um, there was an immediate cheer that arose from the crowd across the highway. Uh, one of the journalists had arranged uh, to signal uh, somebody. Uh, this was back in the day of, of the news wires and sure. bulletins. And so... Uh, I can I can still see the the journalist raising his arm with the notebook in his hand, uh, and people understood that was the signal. The bulletin was sent, and there was this immediate cheer from hundreds of people who had gathered in the field. Did you find that unseemly? It was it was extremely upsetting. Uh, it it really was uh, still upsetting to this day. To be honest, uh, we the journalists the witnesses got into the van. Uh, we were taken over into the middle of that crowd uh, because that's where the, the the media camp was, and so we got out of the van and we were immediately surrounded by again hundreds of people who were treating this like a party, a celebration, um, and uh, having that um, going almost instantaneously from witnessing a person die and even somebody as as horrible uh, as as Ted Bundy witnessing a person die. Um, and then going into this uh, celebratory party atmosphere was extremely difficult. You actually, and we don't want to get grisly here, but uh, and then we'll move on, but you didn't look away. You watched it happen. I was there to do a job. And um, when you watched it happen, did you think of his pain or did you think of the dozens of his victims and then the hundreds of the relatives of the victims whose life will never be the same. What's going through your mind when you're actually watching it? So, so one of the, one of the things that a journalist has to do in those types of, of environments, and I've, I've been in a few of those types of environments in my career, you, you have to shut down the emotional side uh, to a large extent and be in the moment, uh, focus on the details, focus on, on what you're witnessing and not think about at the in that moment. Not think about all the the larger implications. Um, and so I was very focused on what it, what was taking place minute by minute um, from the time that uh, Bundy was led into the execution chamber and, and strapped into the electric chair, paying attention to what he said, paying attention to his interaction with the, some of the witnesses who were sitting in front of me. Um, so it was, you know, that, that's, that was my job. That's why I was there as a journalist. It was to record that history. Um, and so I had to focus on that and, and shut out everything else. Um, and so there later, uh, there was time to work through the emotions and to think about the, the bigger implications, um, and to sort through the very confusing, conflicting emotions I felt from, again, being surrounded by this party uh, celebration of a person's death uh, and also trying to reconcile that with what I'd witnessed. Do you remember his last words? Uh, I don't off the top of my head. I do remember uh, him uh, when he was when he was strapped into the chair and before they put the mask over his face. Uh, he looked at uh, one of the witnesses and said, it's okay. Um, and then he spoke to his attorney and to a pastor who had uh, been ministering to him in, in the last couple of days of his life. He looked at them and said something to the effect of, 
tell my family and friends that I love them. Um, and then they they put a, a black mask over his head, and then they strapped the they strapped him in, um, and it, all, everything uh, unfolded pretty quickly. Were the were any relatives there of the victims who have been killed? I believe there's one woman. I don't know. My uh, I was going to ask you if you watched the Netflix series on him. I did not, and 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 that's actually the Netflix series is why I had not I had not written about Bundy for thirty years, uh, and when I saw all the publicity that was coming out from from first from the Netflix series and then there was a movie at Sundance and and a lot of media attention uh, on the th- the 30th anniversary of the execution um, and and what bothered me about some of the coverage was the um, there was this myth that grew up around Bundy as this very handsome very intelligent killer dangerous but he was the handsome intelligent uh, right, sexy. Correct. I mean, mm-hmm. there's some 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 news organizations actually use the word "sexy" to describe him, and and it, that that's just that's just not accurate. Uh, he this guy was a brutal, brutal killer. Uh, Necrophiliac. He, yes, he 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 would use manipulation at times uh, to lure his victims into a trap. That was one of the ploys that he used, and that's the one that got the most attention. But he often just used brute force, and so there was nothing and sexy or intelligent about him at all. And sympathy. That there's a scene in the movie Silence of the Lambs where Buffalo Bill is injured or is faking an injury to get the girl to help him put something in the van. Yes. That's tra- taken directly from a Ted Bundy uh, tactic. It, it, it was. So one of the things that Bundy did was to put a fake cast on an, a leg or an arm and then ask for help, and then he would he would assault the the victim um kidnap the victim and and then kill her uh so that was one of the tactics he used but it wasn't the only tactic and and uh, he was actually his execution took place he was convicted and and executed because of murders he committed in florida uh one of those involved a very young girl um child uh who he assaulted and murdered uh, and the and the second case, the second capital case, involved uh, a sorority at the University of, well, I think it was Florida State, mm-hmm. um, where he broke in in the middle of the night, uh, brutally assaulted um, several of the women uh, in in the sorority house, killed more than, killed at least two, um, and then assaulted another woman uh, in a nearby house um, that same evening. Um, you know, it had nothing to do with manipulation or supposed level of intelligence. It was just brutal, brutal assault on innocent victims. Last question before we move on. Any relatives? I know the, he had some people who survived attacks. Were you sitting next to any relatives or survivors? Uh, I'm not aware of, of, uh, relatives of, of any of the victims who were in uh, the witness among the witnesses that day. Um, the witnesses, we, the journalist uh, and, and the other witnesses were uh, kind of kept uh, separated. Uh, we didn't have an inter- opportunity to interview or interact with them, and, and that was fine by me. I, sure. I didn't really want to, to do that. Um, and so I, I don't know for certain beyond uh, Bundy's attorney and lead attorney and beyond the pastor who ministered to him. I, I don't know who the other witnesses were. You're listening to Leaders and Legends presented by Veteran Strategies and sponsored by the Girl Scouts of Central Indiana. Our guest today is Tim Swearens, longtime Hoosier journalist. Uh, you come to Indiana when? To come to the star. Uh, 1997. So you come to our fair city just as it's starting to really mature, for lack of a better term. Yes. Uh, We had done the Pan Am games. The Colts were here. It was really on its way. Goldsmith was doing all kinds of uh, mad scientist-esque things. The mall was really probably Mm -hmm. established by then. I think so. They started building the mall in yes, the early the mall to mid-90s. Was, the, the, yes, the mall was uh, up up and, and full in 97. Yeah, yes, that's true. <laughs> full of actual shops. Shops, yes. What was 
attractive about Indianapolis to you and to Mrs. Swearens? So my wife uh, is a is a native of Indianapolis, a Ben Davis grad. So uh, for her, it was coming home. Uh, we had uh, we had moved from Indiana to South Florida in the mid eighties. Had been there for twelve years. When we moved there, we didn't have any children. Uh, by ninety seven, we had four children, and so uh, and we were twelve hundred miles away from the nearest family. Um, we made a decision to, to come back home, uh, back home in Indiana. And uh, um, that's that's why we're here. You came here as the editorial page editor. Is that correct? Or no. you came here as part of that and then matriculated? Over? Yeah. So so the, the original job, they had an opening for a copy editor position. Uh, copy editing positions don't really exist anymore. But I was hired as a, originally hired as a copy editor in 97. And then in May of 98, uh, I had the opportunity to, to move over and be an editorial writer, uh, be on the editorial board. Um, I, had, I had worked as an opinion editor in Florida uh, and really loved that work type of work, liked, that, the, liked what I was doing. And so I uh, was thrilled to have the opportunity to get back into opinion journalism in, in 98. Why opinion journalism and not TV reviews or sports or business? Yeah, it, it, it's there's something about being able to provide context and analysis, and um, being able to share who I am uh, in my coverage. Uh, even you know, going back to the to the Ted Bundy, uh, you know, I, I wrote a news story that day, and I also wrote a column uh, out of the coverage, and uh, being able to um, to give that full range um, and. And having on the opinion side, having the freedom to to say, you know, this isn't right, or um, there, there's there's something very wrong here that needs to be fixed. I, I like having having that that freedom and that ability, and I think it's really important in terms of community to, to provide that type of leadership. So twenty years ago, twenty five years ago, when you come to Indiana, if Tim Swearens on a scale of one to ten, ten being the most conservative, one being the current iteration of AOC, mm-hmm. what were you then, and what are you now? Gosh, um, there's a lot of going on in the mid to late nineties. There, there is so so. Uh, remember in in the nineties we had the Clinton White House, um, and when I when I started on the editorial board in ninety eight, uh, the Lewinsky affair uh, scandal um, had broken, um, and uh, the president uh, had stood up and and kind of you know pounded his chest, wagged his finger, and said, you know, I did not have sexual relations with that woman, Monica Lewinsky. Um, so he bold-faced lie to the American public on camera. Um, and there was a lot of a lot of debate at the time. It's, it's really fascinating to see how things have changed because you had people on the left who argued that the most powerful person in the world having an affair in the White House, in the Oval Office, with an intern, was consensual in nobody's business. Now, because the economy that. was growing at 5%, and there was we that, had taken it was, the... It was, it was the, partisan. It was partisan. It no, was, I agree with that, but yeah. part of the argument was, and I don't judge the argument, but part of the argument was, the country's doing really well. Who cares? Right. I mean, that, that, that was a part of it, but, but, but I mean, the, the more common argument was, honestly was this is nobody's business. Uh, Correct. And, and you know, the, the fact that, again, a much older man, much more powerful man, had, uh, had had sex in the office with an intern was nobody's business. And that those um, fundamentalist right-wing Republicans who hate sex were making, blowing this all out of proportion. Uh, so that was an argument twenty years ago sure. in late in late nineties, and and that was the argument put forward by the political left. Fast forward to 2017, 2018, 2019 in the Me Too movement, um, the world has changed, and I think it's changed for the better, um, because I think 
Bill Clinton did use his power to hurt and in some ways ruin a young woman's life. And you hear Monica Lewinsky today talk about everything that she went through. And, and it's very common for, for uh, men and women who find themselves in those situations years later to talk about this is one of the worst experiences of their lives. So it's a big deal. It was a big deal in the 90s. It's a big deal today. Um, but the conversation nationally has switched because you, more often than not, you hear people on the left who are talking about the time is up and me too. Um, and you hear sometimes people on the right today defending a Donald Trump and others of saying, wow, it doesn't really matter. The media is fond of saying Dwight Eisenhower, Rich, Robert, excuse me, uh, I was going to say Richard Nixon. That wasn't his issue. Uh, Ronald <laughs> as far Reagan, as, we know, it as far as we know, proposed to his wife on their first date, on their first date. Uh, Ronald Reagan, Dwight Eisenhower, they couldn't get nominated these days by the Republican Party. Could Bill Clinton? It, Bill, well, not only because of, of that necessarily, but also that, I mean, he was one of the founders of something called the Democrat leadership. He, he was. The DLC, but, where it was centrist by definition. So, so, so Bill Clinton w- was a master politician. Uh, he had his pulse on the public uh, in ways that I, very few politicians uh, in my lifetime, uh, I would say Barack Obama would be the only other one who um, understood how to connect with people on a very personal level, uh, people on the street. Um, And so it's a little bit like saying, would Willie Mays be a great baseball player today, given how much the game has changed? Well, yeah, he probably would, because he would adapt. I think Bill Clinton coming along today would be a very different type of candidate um, and a very different, he would handle himself in, in handle himself in a very different way, um, and yeah, he, he he got it. He would from a political standpoint, he got it just like a Barack Obama got it. Um, you think it's fair to say that if Al Gore had listen, listened to Bill Clinton in two thousand, and Hillary Clinton had listened to Bill Clinton in twenty sixteen, they both would have won? I think it's very possible. Yes, uh, I mean, just a great, that would be my theory. I mean, for all of his faults, for all of his moral failings, Bill Clinton was a great political mind in his day, and. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think he would have said, go to Wisconsin. Um, yes. Right. Yes. And, you can't lose your home state, Al, if you want to win the right, presidency. Right. Yeah. yeah. In my you state, gotta, in my state, by the way. Right. And so, so yeah, in, in, you know, Clinton, Clinton was able deep, deep red states today. Clinton was able to win in 92 and 96, um, he would he would use a different strategy today and a different approach, but yes, I, I he he's smart and ambitious, and he would still be successful today, despite all of his failings. Let's switch to two particular uh, three big stories. We'll go through them quickly um, that you were a part of and covered here at Indianapolis Star. November two thousand seven. The, the, the political world, the establishment is shocked when Greg Ballard becomes mayor of Indianapolis. Um, I'm going to ask every single guest on this show, even if I'm doing my last guest uh, show from the nursing home, uh, did you think Greg Ballard was going to win? And I guarantee you, Greg Ballard will remain the only person who said, yeah, I'm going to win. <laughs> and he says it with conviction. So I give him that. And I can't necessarily dispute it. But talk about that as someone you'd been here about 12 years by then. Yes. Deeply. 10 years. 10 years. Deeply enmeshed in politics. And, and, you know, Mark Peterson was a damn good mayor, had a lousy six months. And you you covered a lot of politicians, a lot of elections, a lot of personalities. Shoehorn Greg Ballard into those particular categories. What did you think of him, his performance as mayor? And what did you think of his election? So let me let me answer your first question uh, first. No, I did not think Greg Ballard was going to win in in two thousand seven. Uh, Matt Tolley and I talked about this uh, quite a bit, and you know we always said you know in hindsight we should have picked up uh, the clues. Um, and, and I think to understand why Greg Ballard won, you have to understand what was going on in in two thousand seven. Um, 
So it, it takes a lot to get Hoosiers in the streets protesting. Um, and in the spring and summer of 2007, after property tax bills came out, uh, exactly. people were marching in the streets. They marched on the governor's mansion. Um, Middle-class voters marching in the streets in, in a tax protest. Uh, people were actually dumping tea into the canal. Um, and so there was a lot of anger at uh, what was going on. A lot of of uh, people thinking things had to change, and in the in the middle of all of that, uh, Bart Peterson uh, not only proposed but pushed through the city county council a local income tax increase, um, and so it was pouring gasoline on the fire. And I think the the and you know Bart Peterson's a really bright guy, and I think overall was a good mayor. Um, I think he got some really bad advice uh, from the people around him that they just thought they could get away with this in, in an election year. That this explosion is so big, this explosion over here is so big, no one's going to pay attention to the one over here that, that everyone's mad about X, so Y is just not going to get as much attention. And, and I think I think they also were looking at, hey, this is this was increasingly a Democratic city. Uh, he had won, so he Peterson was going for a third term. He'd won his first two terms pretty easily, first two elections. Um, they they really felt like he had the political capital to spend on this, and and you know the city was then as now was struggling to pay the bills. Uh, the, the, they, were, they were trying to figure out how to how to pay for basic services, and so the solution they hit upon was uh, increasing the local option income tax um, for public safety reasons. For I mean, public either. safety, and and so you know the public safety was. You know, twelve years ago, that was a big part of people's concerns in this city was public safety, just as it is in twenty nineteen. Um, so, you know, they they thought they they understood uh, the dangers of, of a tax increase in election year, but they thought they could do it. They had the margin to do it. Um, so that was a big part of it. Uh, I, I think there were other issues that some of the of their core constituencies were upset with them um, and did not have as much support for the mayor as they thought. Um, and so it created an opening for somebody like Greg Ballard, who had um, no experience in elected office, but had a lot of life experience and uh, was was the, an unknown, an upstart in many ways uh, from the political scene, but, but offered a, a counter story. One of your uh, former colleagues, uh, the wonderful Beth Murphy, uh, I believe, takes credit. That's not true. Should be given credit for this line. She called him the unmayor. The unmayor. I, I, I've not heard that one. The accidental mayor. He was often known as the accidental mayor. Well, Tully, uh, late great, our friend Matt Tully, uh, wrote a column calling him the unmayor. The and unmayor. I was think I was working for the mayor at the yeah. time. And I texted him. I'm like, I love it. Mm-hmm. That's perfect for us. He goes, I can't take credit. It was Beth. It was Beth Murphy who came up with it. Greg Ballard's eight years as mayor. It's fair to say. He completely and totally turned the doubters on their heads. I mean, serious doubters, not partisan doubters. Yeah, not the partisan his, doubters. His performance as mayor for those eight years ranks up there, in my view, with any performance by any elected official in Indiana. I, you know, I think of of the eight years that, that Greg Ballard was mayor, I think the first seven, uh, he did a, an outstanding job. I think the last year... He was tired. Uh, he was ready to be done. Um, and, um, you know, I think he actually, some of his legacy was tarnished a little bit uh, in the short term because of that last year. But, but overall, he did, a, he did a, a, an amazing job. And, and um, I, think, I think one of the things that um, helped and hurt Greg Ballard uh, was expectations. I think he came into office with uh, very low expectations from the public and from from community leaders because they just didn't know him. Um, And some of the rhetoric was a little, when you talk about dumping tea in the White River and stuff, I mean, you know, that's not, it's symbolic, but it's not serious. They they just weren't sure how serious of a man he was, how how thoughtful. And I know that because I was his press secretary, as you know, for the transition. 
And I still remember you and Matt Tully coming over to transition headquarters about a week after the election. I'm looking at the two of you and I'm laughing at you guys and you're laughing at me like, what the hell are we doing here? What is going on? I can't believe it. But what he did before we move on, because the next I want to ask you about the Super Bowl mm-hmm. and then I want to ask you about Riffra and then we'll talk about what you're doing now is the two things about Greg Ballard that I, that I think were most instructive for how he I hate to say how he mayored, but how he mayored the fact he had traveled the world and seen how big cities and and other continents did things, A, and B, he listened to his kids talk about the kind of city they want to work in, live, have kids, get an education. And I think when you combine those two things, you've gotten 80 to 90% of why Greg Ballard did what he did and why he thought as he thought. You know, I think those are both really good points. Um, I mean, what what Greg Ballard did that, and and we have we have been blessed in this city with a string of of good mayors, um, going back to Richard Luger, uh, to Hudnut, to Goldsmith, uh, and and to Bart Peterson, uh, and then and then Greg Ballard came along, and and in that first year or two, it was a big question mark of you know how he was going to do. Um, and and I think one of the things that is a big part of his legacy is he did help Indianapolis begin to look outward to the world on a whole different level. We became much more of an international city uh, in our focus and in our welcoming the world and and under Greg Ballard uh, than what we had been previously. Um, he also, as as you mentioned, he, he because of his kids, he began to build. Uh, an infrastructure in this city that was welcoming to a new generation of emerging leaders. Uh, you know, Blue Indy, uh, all the criticism that it got, but it was very forward-thinking um, and and understanding that transportation needs were changing, uh, in particular in an urban environment. And there were so many things like that uh, that that were that Greg Ballard introduced. But but the other thing that that I think uh, sometimes gets overlooked that is, to me, maybe the most important thing that Greg Ballard did. He had enough maturity and he had enough self-confidence to surround himself with outstanding people and then let them do their jobs. Um, and so if you look at the people who are leading the city today who who got uh, their start in many ways with Greg Ballard. I mean, that is a tremendous legacy for him. You talk about a Mike Huber and a Ryan Vaughn, and you know, you just go Brandon to Brown at the Mind Trust. Yes, I mean, you 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 could probably n- name half a dozen people, if not more, who are um, you know who are making a difference in this community, who got uh, not maybe not their start, but who got a boost in their careers. A launching pad was being in the in the Ballard administration. Greg Wilson at the Civil Rights Commission. Jason Dudich, who's the state budget director, and that but that's a common theme of the mayor's office, right? I mean, who are Luger's two chiefs of staff? Jim Morris and I don't it, know who was the I, second. Mitch Daniels was Mitch the Daniels first, was the and then Morris was Morris. What did like the last six years? But yeah. we've interviewed some of them for leaders and legends. A lot of these people. So much happens in the mayor's office, and I remember talking to some of my D friends when when Hogsett won. I'm like, you know, whether it was. I hate to dime out Jennifer Wagner, but she's not here, so she gets dimed <laughs> out. It's like, go work for him. Go work in the mayor's office. You, you you simply can't understand how much impact you can have up there and, and who and who you meet. Um, so thank you for the kind words. Uh, the star didn't endorse him either time. Do you want to repent in the next 10 seconds? You know, I, I think... <laughs> <laughs> so, so that first one, um, I, you know, I think... Given what we knew at the time, uh, I think the the responsible thing was to endorse Bart Peterson uh, for a third term. Bart Peterson had been a good mayor. Um, he he had a bad six months, and he, he had some errors in judgment. And he got he listened to some bad advice. But you look at the overall eight years that he served, he was a good mayor, of course. Um, and he was running against a Greg Ballard who never served in elected office and was was a largely unknown, and so. Yeah, I, I mean, I think it was a really pretty easy call to endorse Peterson for a third term, despite the problems that he was having in that last year. Um, the, the, the second time around was a much, much more difficult call. And, you know, I, I don't want to go back and, and rehash internal history of how that decision was made. But, 
Um, I'll, I'll just say that it was not a unanimous decision to endorse who we endorsed in, in the second time around. Heard and understood. I remember that was one of the few actual heated discussions you and I ever had. Uh, and that's what happens sometimes when you're doing a job and I'm loyal and it wasn't your fault. And I know it wasn't, it was a split decision. Um, and as, as I recall, you know, that's one of those things that's tough because there's a lot of really good, really smart people in Indianapolis. I think that's one of the things yes. that's underrated is just the overall quality of leadership. And there are some partisan times, you know, now that we're dealing with, but I don't know that Indianapolis has necessarily suffered through those. I mean, it's still very strong bipartisan town. It, it is, I think, much more so today than perhaps it was 20 years ago. I, I do remember when, uh, in Bart Peterson's particularly in his first term in office, uh, and how partisan it was on the city county council. Uh, and uh, Peterson was the first Democratic mayor in forever uh, in Indianapolis. And uh, during Peterson's uh, time in office, Democrats gained control of the city county council for the first time in 30, 40 years. Yeah, I for think. a second term, correct. Right. And so there was a lot of, and, and there was a lot of partisanship on both sides uh, in those days on the council. Um, that's changed, and I think it's good. Uh, it's, it's honestly silly in many ways uh, for partisans to, to argue as much as they do about local elections. We all want you know, streets without potholes. We all want safe neighborhoods. We all want the trash picked up on time. I mean, those, those are all the bread and butter basic services that cities have to provide. We all want better parks. Um, and, you know, just to go down the list, those are, those are not ideological. Those are not partisan concerns. What was it like uh, to be at the Star when the Super Bowl, I know we have just a few minutes, but when the Super Bowl was going on, it's the biggest event in the city's history. No, I mean, that's no disrespect to the 500, obviously, every year, but the, the Super Bowl, certainly with sui generis, never could have thought that we would ever host anything like that. And the city just did. We've done a podcast with Allison Melangdon, and you just you're mesmerized when she's talking about it. It was it was a it was a magical week, and and uh, the world really did come to um, Indianapolis that week. And uh, the focus, uh, the, the Super Bowl is is you know it's a national holiday in some respects. That's and, a good way to put it. And it's uh you know it, there's there's so much attention uh, placed on that game and everything that goes around it. And so and and, and so it was it was. Lots of fun to cover, um, and there was a there was a sense at the end of of community pride. Uh, the city pulled it off uh, and did a fantastic job. So there's you know you're part of the community and you feel good about that, and and we felt really good about the coverage we provided. I mean it was it was at a time when the star was still very healthy and we could provide uh, first rate coverage, and we did. And so that you know it's going back seven years ago and it's a tremendous tremendous sense of pride about what we were able to do seven years though lifetime and journalism lifetime. your world has changed was i asked you a few minutes ago on a scale of one to ten ten being super conservative tim swearens of 1997 or eight or five or 2000 choose your reference point where would you be now on that same scale and combine that with your answer to this question please did any part of RIFRA make sense to you? Did well, <laughs> and the reason I'm asking is because you were an avowed religious conservative of the culture war and, and combat I, yeah, in, the, and, in the 90s, and you've written about it. So I'm not I'm not throwing anything up there that hasn't been written. But I mean, you you've talked and we've talked privately in our lunches about how both our views have changed on certain issues. Yeah, and so so it, it it's. So it's hard for me to put myself on a scale. Uh, I'm, I'm, you know, I, 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 I don't like much of what Donald Trump says and how he acts. Um, I, I certainly don't like what I'm hearing from some of the newer members of Congress or so far on the left. Um, it, conservatism has changed, and, and those labels mean so many different things to different people these days. Um, I, I don't know that my views have changed. Um, precisely how i articulate my views um that's definitely changed um and i i i've tr i try to listen to people more uh 
try not to be as forceful in expressing my own views uh, in, in the sense of trying to win an argument. Um, there are some things that we're just not, we're not going to change each other's point of view um, in, on some of these important issues, but issues that people feel very, very deeply about. Uh, whether it's abortion, whether it's gay rights, or what you know, any, any talk about hot button issues, we're just not going to change each other's point of view on it. Um, I'm not going to try and get you to say you, I'm right and you're wrong. Please don't try to get me to say I'm wrong and you're right. Uh, what I will say is I respect you. Um, I value you as as a fellow human being. I respect that you have a different point of view. Um, and uh, we, we're going to share this planet together. We're going to share this city together. We're going to share our neighborhoods together. Uh, I hope we can be friends uh, and we can respect one another, even though we have different points of view. Um, my faith teaches me that. Um, I'm not abandoning my faith in saying that. I'm, I think I'm living out my faith in saying that. Um, and so... Uh, what I what I do regret is in times in the past where I have said things, um, not because I felt like I was coming from the wrong point of view, but because how I was saying what I was saying was not being respectful for others who had a different point of view. Last question before we go to the five questions: Is journalism broken? If so, what's Doctor Swearens's prescription i don't know if it's broken but it's badly damaged um and so i that my hesitancy in saying broken is because i again i, I think that becomes uh, a reflection on people who are working very very hard every day as journalists and who are very passionate and very dedicated to what they do um but i think the business model is is uh broken if it, badly damaged if not broken i think the public perception of journalism has been badly damaged. Um, and so those are two separate problems in, in many ways, and, but enormous problems that journalists are having to deal with every day. Um, I am deeply concerned about what's happening on the community level uh, with journalism today in terms of funding. Um, the star in, we don't have to go back that far. And so in 2008, the star had more than 200 journalists working in the newsroom. Today, that many? Yes. Um, in, in, so going back a little over a decade, more than 200 journalists working in the Indy Star newsroom covering central Indiana. Um, today, there are roughly 60 journalists uh, working in the Star newsroom. So from more than 200 to about 60 in a little over 10 years. Uh, I wish I could say with any amount of confidence that that the loss of journalism, journalists, uh, the shrinkage of journalism will not continue, um, that, that, that they've hit bottom. I don't think that's the case. I think everybody expects that there'll be further, further reductions in staff as we move forward. Um, and and that, that does have an effect on uh, how journalists do their job, the types of stories they're able to write, how much time they can spend on a story, how much time they can spend in learning a beat, learning what the, the, the complexities of the things that they're covering. All of that has an effect on coverage. It's a serious problem. It's not just in Indianapolis. This is happening across the country. Uh, Cleveland, uh, the plain dealer, uh, recently laid off uh, 15 to 20 staff members just in the last couple of weeks. And at that time, they, they said they at one time had more than 300 journalists working in the, at the Cleveland Plain Dealer. They're now down to about 50 or 60. And so this is, this is a problem across the country. Uh, some of us are talking on a local level. What, what is, are there things that we can do about this? Um, and so what we've been talking about is there, is there another type of funding model that could be out there? And, and 
your recent separation from the star came after you had probably one of the best years of your life as a journalist with your coverage of the human trafficking. Yeah. Thank you for saying crisis. that. And yeah, I was very proud of the work that I did in 2018. Uh, you know, it got weird in, in the digital world where, where numbers driven and, and I had great numbers in 2018. Uh, and so that was this, and that was probably the biggest reason why, you know, when I got the phone call on January 23rd saying, Tim, you know, we, we no longer need your services, that I was shocked, despite all the all the things that are going on in the industry, um, because I had come off a, a really, really good year uh, on, from a journalistic level on in 2018, and I thought that would be enough, but it wasn't. Um, and, and again, that's that should be a warning for all of us. It doesn't, these days, it, you can do a great job as a journalist and still lose your job, and you can there still be that gap in the community in terms of coverage. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, presented by Veteran Strategies and sponsored by the Girl Scouts of Central Indiana. We're here with Tim Swearens, and we're ready for the five questions. You ready? Sure. What was your first job? So my first job, other besides uh, having a lawn mowing business, uh, was uh, bagging groceries uh, in the local IGA. In high school, I'm assuming. In high school, yes. What was your first concert? First concert was probably the Ramones at, at IU Bloomington. <laughs> That's a good place for the Ramones to go. Yes. IU Bloomington. Uh, if you could recommend any book to someone to read. Oh, gosh. Uh, there are a lot of... It, any one book, it's hard to It's hard to. This is proving separate. to be the toughest, would you say, Spangle? The toughest of the five questions. Yeah, it's kind of like, well, what's... You know, what's... If you could recommend one Beatles song, what would it be? It's like, well, come on. Um, like, it, I have no sympathy for former journalists <laughs> who get put on freaking the edge of their seat by a question they don't yeah, like. So, so can't answer. Right, so it's not I'm like Amanda Kingsbury. I, I, I'm going to recommend a book. I don't know if it's the book, but I'll recommend a book that I, that I read. Uh, last fall that that it stuck with me and the reason why is because one it's just a really great story and there's Indianapolis is a part of the story but also because I think on a in terms of a local level it it should challenge us in some ways and uh, it's a book called um, Devil in the White City it's it's uh, it's a history of Chicago uh, in in the late 19th century and a group of community leaders decided they wanted to have the World Expo, the World's Fair in Chicago. They were bidding uh, against countries from around the world. Uh, it was an enormous undertaking. Uh, they were very big and bold and ambitious in what they took on. Uh, it, the, the, the actual expo was a tremendous success, and it transformed Chicago. Exactly. Um, and so um, – I think on an application level, uh, I think when cities and communities think in big ways, when they're bold, when they're looking forward, uh, great things can happen. And, you know, in 2019 in Chicago, people who live there and people who visit there are still enjoying the benefits of what Daniel Burnham and his crew uh, decided to do um, almost 130 years ago now. Great choice. If you could witness any event in history, which event would you choose? Mm. Be there as it happens. Yeah, so many, so many events. Um, so I think the two that that come to mind the earliest, the, the quickest, uh, one is June 6th, 1944, uh, to, to be a part of the D-Day coverage, uh, as dangerous as that would have been. Uh, but to be a part of that uh, that day, uh, that changed history. Um, and you know, we don't often think about what if what if the D Day invasion had failed. What would our world be like today? Uh, there is it, an inevitability of events. Yeah, you assume that we would have put a man on the moon by the end of the sixties. You would assume, even though right. um, Eisenhower famously wrote the note saying yeah. that he had failed to gain the foothold. and right. I mean, the list goes on and on. Right. Like the North would have won the Civil the War, war. that we would have beaten it, the British. Right. It, but, 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 the, but the D-Day invasion, if that had failed, if, 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 and, and, the reason, and the reason why the D-Day invasion worked, is that it's a, there's, there's been really good coverage of this, was that when, when the men hit the beach and the plan 
that Eisenhower and so many others had put together was a complete disaster. The men on the beach had the courage and the uh, leadership ability to adjust in the moment under fire to make adjustments and to win the day based on their individual decisions. They didn't, they didn't look back over the channel and say, Ike, tell us what to do. They made decisions in the moment that won that day. And uh, if those men on that beach had not made those decisions, if they had been programmed in slightly different ways, not to take charge, not to make decisions, not to step forward in the face of deadly fire, uh, then the world today would be so different than we see it today. And um, there's rare moments in history when individuals, not the generals, but individuals who are on a beach making decisions in the moment change the course of history. And and those men on that day did it. Um, so the, the, the implications of that day have continue to play out um you know all these years later so that would be the day number one and the second would be for the same reasons uh is july 4 1776 um because the world changed that day as well and what if what if um the continental congress had not been able to reach a compromise what if what if you know benjamin franklin had stormed out Mm-hmm. And Thomas Jefferson had said, I'm going back to Virginia. I'm done with you, yahoos. He he was sitting at his desk sulking because they had the audacity to edit his draft. <laughs> yes, but, but he stayed. He, <laughs> he stayed did stay, room. point and, taken. And, 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 they were worried, and they had the ability to work it out. And, and I, again, I think there are lessons to be learned today from that. And we, we live in such partisan times and we live in such a split society um, that you know, to, could a Ted Cruz and name somebody on the left come into a room and strike a great compromise that changes the course of history? Could we do that today? I don't know. I don't know what we could. Well, that's a fair point for sure. Um, Orrin Hatch and Ted Kennedy, we used to do it. Right. Uh, it, so it, yes, and, and so Tip O'Neill and Ronald Reagan, right, worked together. Uh, Tip O'Neill, Speaker of the House, Ronald Reagan, the President, and they they worked together to get things done in the '80s. So it can be done. Can be it was done in my lifetime. I don't know that we're there today. Last question: If you could have dinner with anyone in the world, living, anyone in the world You're living, living. Hmm. whom would you choose? These are tough questions because you know it's like there's so many. Wait people. a second. You know how many freaking editorial boards I've sat in with you? I like I have no sympathy. Yeah, <laughs> these questions yeah, could be a hell of a lot are. tougher. So today, living today, it's always wow. funny to get a look from your client while Matt Tully's just chewing on him and they're standing there. Anyway, yeah. So it's 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 good actually. Last question. On the other side of the microphone. I agree. So. All right, I'm I'm buying time here. Who would I like to have dinner with? You know, I've I've wanted to, I've been blessed in my my career to meet some really fascinating people, like to interview Bono, to interview Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama and Mike Pence and Greg Ballard, and you know, go down the list of really fascinating people. Somebody alive today, um, you know, I I I think Bill Gates would be really fascinating. Uh, Steve Jobs would have been fascinating. He's not alive today, but I think Bill Gates, um, because he's seen he has seen the digital revolution from its start to where we are now. Thank you very much, Tim, for your time today. Uh, we appreciate your insight, and we uh, everyone listening. If you uh, Tim is doing some consulting work, so if you need a veteran uh, journalist who can understand what the media thinks and and why they do what they do, please reach out to Tim. Assuming that veteran strategies is not an option, but you know we're always happy to sh- <laughs> we're happy to shill for our friends here. Yes, thank you, thank you, Tim, for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you very much for listening to Leaders and Legends, brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated. If you want to contact us about this program or our menu of public relations services, please send us an email at robert at veteranstrategies.com. That's robert at veteranstrategies.com. Robert at veteranstrategies.com.